I'd like for you to turn to two places in the New Testament this morning. Uh, first, I'd like for you to uh, turn to Matthew chapter 16, okay, Matthew chapter number 16. And as you turn to Matthew chapter 16, once you get there, I'd like for you to hold your place there, okay? And then I want you to flip over to Romans chapter 1. Matthew chapter 16, then hold your place there, and, and then find... Uh, Romans chapter 1. Uh, we're beginning a, a brief uh, series of sermons, and really it's just all one big sermon divided into part 1, part 2, and part 3. We're talking about why we're not Catholic. It's a celebration of the, of the Protestant Reformation, the Sunday anniversary of which will come next weekend as we gather together. Over the next three weeks, we're going to talk a lot about how God has built and preserved his church and why we celebrate our identity as Protestants, Protestant Christians. So today we're going to take a quick journey through church history. Next Sunday we're going to look at the five solas, which is the main message of the Reformation, followed by the third week in looking at the distinctions between Protestants and Catholics today in the era in which you and I live now. So let us dive into this together with God's help and begin by reading in Romans chapter 1, just two verses, verses 16 and 17. Paul writing here says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, that is the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now I'd like for you to turn over, if you would, to Matthew chapter 16. And I want us to see just one verse. It's verse number 18. The setting is Caesarea Philippi. Jesus is there with his disciples. And he says specifically to them in verse 18 of Matthew 16, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I've had the privilege to visit Caesarea Philippi, located in the Galilean region of Israel. Near the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, he brought his disciples here. And it would seem as an odd choice of location, considering that Caesarea Philippi was the center for pagan worship during this time. The place was notoriously wicked, and at the heart of it all was a temple, a shrine dedicated to the Greek fertility gods. It was constructed on the edge of a mountain right in front of a cave that went deep into the foot of Mount Hermon, the place where many believe the Mount of Transfiguration took place. A very corrupt and wicked things would take place here in this temple, in this cave, in the name of religion. Child sacrifices, human sacrifices, open prostitution, even 
the gross thought of bestiality. In Jesus' day, it had gained the nickname because of its wickedness and evil, the gates of hell. That's what they called it, the gates of hell. It is here in Caesarea Philippi, perhaps in this moment in Matthew chapter 16, that Jesus is standing in front of this temple, in front of this cave. He is standing in front of the gates of hell. And as he is standing in front of the gates of hell, he makes a promise to his disciples. And the promise is there in Matthew 16, 18. I will build my church and not even the gates of hell will stop it. Not even the gates of hell will prevail against it. So he's saying in this statement, not only do we have his promise to build his church, he, he owns it, he's the foundation of it, I will build my church, he's going to build it, but we also have the promise that he's going to preserve it. He's going to keep it alive. It'll never die. Now, it's vital that we acknowledge these words from Jesus, especially as we look back at church history from the days of Christ up until this very moment in which you and I live. Because history shows us that Christ has kept that promise. He has promised to build it. He has promised to preserve it. And here we stand 2,000 years later seeing that promise kept through persecution, division, corruption, and even darkness. Christ has kept the heartbeat of his church alive regardless of all that hell has thrown its way in attempt to stop it. And today, she, that is the church, is not perfect. It's never been perfect. And although she is not perfect, Christ's true church is flourishing. And it's flourishing around the world as he gathers people unto himself and prepares his bride for his return. Let's journey through church history and see how God fulfilled this promise to where we are today. And that's going to be the bulk of the message. And then I'm going to give you some very pointed statements from Romans chapter 1, the verses that we read. Church history begins, and you'll follow this there on the screens. It, it begins with an age that we call the early church, the first through the fourth centuries. A time period when Christianity spread from Jerusalem to the uttermost parts of the earth, even in the midst of, of great persecution. You see, it was here that Jesus assembled his disciples. He trained them for three and a half years. And then after his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, his church, those, those disciples began to go forth with the message of Jesus that they had learned directly from him. But it came at a great cost, the cost of persecution. Acts chapter 8 and verse 1 tells us that there arose on that day, during that time, a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And as a result of that persecution, the church was scattered all throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Now we would think that this is not such a good thing, but notice what Christ did through it. 
that as they were scattered throughout all the known world, verse 4 of Acts chapter 8 says that those who were scattered went, and as they went, they went preaching the word. So as persecution drove them out of the region of Jerusalem into the other world, they, they didn't give up on the gospel. They didn't close their Bibles and die out. No, they went preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we learn through the early church, the first through fourth centuries, that throughout these first 300 years of Christianity, this, this was the story. Thousands of Christians were tortured, put to death in horrific and cruel ways. But the church grew. And the point is to be made here even about the person and work of Jesus Christ. Think about it. If you're here this morning wondering in your minds the reality of whether or not Jesus was real and was or is who he said he was, I want you to think about the fact that according to history we see that those who knew him best were willing to die for who they believed that he was. They had walked with him. They had seen him. They had talked with them. And every one of these, especially in the realm of the apostles, they all died a martyr's death because of their relationship with Jesus. I mean, just consider the apostles for a moment. Paul was imprisoned and then beheaded. James, the brother of John, was beheaded. Thomas went as far as India where he preached the gospel but then was later killed by the shot of an arrow. Simon Peter was crucified, upside down, tradition says. Simon the zealot preached throughout Africa. He was also crucified. Mark founded the church in Egypt, and then eventually he was burned alive. Bartholomew preached in Armenia and was crucified. And then after his crucifixion, they even beheaded him. Andrew evangelized in Ethiopia and was crucified. Matthew preached in Egypt and Ethiopia and was run through his death with a spear. Philip ministered in Greece and was crucified. And then again, after they crucified him, they still stoned him to death. James, the brother of Jesus, was beaten to death by religious Pharisees, legalists. John the apostle was exiled. He wasn't crucified or beaten or stoned, but he was exiled because of his faith where he there eventually died of natural causes. You see, for the first three and a half centuries, Christ preserved his church through some of the most severe persecution that it has ever seen. Then we move from the early church into the fourth through sixth centuries, an age that we call the Christian Empire. The Christian Empire. A time period where Christianity became legalized. So up to this point, Christianity had been persecuted largely by Rome. But now, in an odd twist, the church is being legalized by Rome. It's being accepted, even protected. However, political leaders in this time merged the state and the church together, making the heads of the state the heads of the church thereby claiming authority over them. It would be much like President Biden placing one of his cabinet members as in charge of all the churches in the United States of America. We might think for a moment, okay, that, that might sound helpful if we just have this countrywide state religion called Christianity, but 
How often do we have to remind ourselves that when you mix politics with religion, you always get politics? The church's identity suddenly became blurred. It began to adopt practices that were not reflective of the early church which Christ had founded. Some would have looked at this as a good period of time. At least the church is not being persecuted. But I'm telling you, the church being accepted by the world, the church being legalized by the culture would eventually lead back to the exact same things. And this is what happened from the year 300 approximately to the year 590. It was the age of the Christian empire. Christianity being legalized, accepted, protected. It became the state religion, the official state religion of Rome. And then we move into the 6th through 16th centuries. I'm covering a lot of territory here. From the year 590 to the mid-1500s, we have the, the Middle Ages, the Dark Ages. A time period when political divisions were at an all-time high. Political divisions regarding kingdoms, regarding land, regarding power within the Roman Empire. It's, it's never been stronger than what it is now. And those divisions politically, because now the church was underneath the political power of Rome, it quickly gives way to division in the church. And because of strong political maneuvering and doctrinal disagreements, the church even split. And this is where we see the formation of, in the Western world, the Roman Catholic Church, and in the Eastern world, the Greek Orthodox Church, which remained in its Catholic roots, but separated due to political matters. Now, doctrinally speaking, one of the major divisions that took place during the Middle Ages surrounded salvation, the doctrine and theology of soteriology. On one hand, you had a faithful church leader, Augustine, who taught what we understand is biblical salvation. That man is born into sin. We are born sinners. We are depraved. We have inherited our parents' sin nature at the moment of birth. Man is born into sin. But Augustine also understood the biblical teaching that although we are born into sin, we are saved from our sin through faith. And that's the only way that we can be saved. And the anthem in which he preached from the Bible was this, that God steps toward us. We're depraved. We're sinners. And so God has to step toward us. We call that grace. Salvation by grace. God takes the step toward us. Augustine remained faithful to that. Much of our understanding of soteriology today comes from those early writings of Augustine. But then you have, on the other hand, a man by the name of Pelagius. Pelagius began to teach that man is not born into sin. That instead, man learns how to sin. And because man learns how to sin, that means we can unlearn how to sin. And the way that you unlearn how to sin is by keeping God's rules, thereby earning salvation. And his anthem, unlike Augustine's anthem, was that we have to step toward God first. 
And if we step toward God first, then God will step toward us. Friends, that is not grace. That is merit. Merit. However you want to call it, whatever you want to look at it, that is merit. So Augustine is remaining faithful to the word salvation by grace, salvation by grace, salvation by grace. Pelagius comes on the scene and says, no, 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 salvation by works, by merit, by merit, by merit. And friends, this spread all throughout the church. It permeated the world. Because what we have here is an obvious emphasis on works of merit, visible things that we must do in order to earn grace. So as a result, there arose issues with the papacy, the popes and the priests. They began to place themselves on a level of infallibility. There were issues related to the scriptures. They would only use one translation, that is the Latin translation, only this translation, and it must be interpreted by priest. So it didn't matter what language you spoke or where you lived, the only way you were going to know, learn, and understand the Bible is if you hear it in Latin and then the priest explain it to you. So there's issues related to the scriptures. There's issues related to core doctrines such as how the sacraments were viewed. Now, sacraments, and we, we, would, we would say a sacrament is an ordinance like baptism and the Lord's Supper. It was no longer viewed as something that we do as a fruit of our faith. It's now something we have to do in order for our sins to be forgiven. So the mass became this re-sacrificing of Christ all over again. Transubstantiation came into view that every time we drink of the cup and eat of the bread, it's literally turning into the body and blood of Jesus Christ. And because of that, we need that Eucharist. We need that supper because we need our sins to be forgiven. So the core doctrines, such as the sacraments, they, they, they were grossly blurred. And then there were issues with false doctrines altogether, such as the false doctrines of purgatory and indulgences, which we'll talk about in a moment. It is most certainly a dark period of time where the majority of people who identified as Christians had departed from the Word of God and given themselves over to corruption and deception that was led by the church. Now, the question that is often asked, did God abandon the church during this time? Was there any group of people out there at all who were remaining faithful to the church that Christ had established with his disciples? Was, was anyone getting saved in the Middle Ages? Well, remember, what did Jesus say in Matthew 16, 18? He said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So what do we know? We know that God fulfills his promises. And we know that even in Old Testament history with Israel, God always preserved a people for himself, even when they were in Babylonian captivity, which many reformers refer to the Dark Ages as. <laughs> this was the church's Babylonian captivity in the same way that, that God had sent Israel into that captivity. But what did God do? God always had his remnant. 
He always had his people. He always preserved those who truly by faith followed him. So, so to answer those questions, did the church die? Was anyone getting saved? Did God abandon it? Was there anybody out there at all? Well, by faith, we have to accept that fact. That somewhere there were true redeemed believers in the pure gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, just because history doesn't point out large numbers of true Christians during this particular time doesn't mean that there weren't Christians existing who were living out the gospel. My my answer to that is this. The true church didn't die during the Middle Ages because God always preserves his church. Always. And we see that. In fact... It's around the 12th century when a grassroots movement of monks began to rise up and stand against the beliefs and practices of the Roman Catholic Church. These men, and let me give you a few names. You ought to study them out, read from them, learn about them. Peter Waldo and John Wycliffe, John Huss, men of this nature, they they stood against the false doctrines and the corrupt authority of the Pope and the other church leaders. This grassroots movement began by acknowledging that the people deserve to read the Bible in their own common language. That's where it began. Because again, remember, only one translation was endorsed by the church. It was only Latin, right? You can't use anything else. We're not going to translate the Bible into anything else. If you want to know the Bible, then I'm going to have to explain it to you. Well, well, these men, these these movement of monks realized, well, this is... This is antithetical to the teaching of Christ. Everybody deserves to have a Bible in a language that they can understand, in a vernacular that they can read. So the very first thing they did in this period of time was they began to translate the Bible and to use the Bible to show the people the false doctrines and corruption of the Roman Catholic Church. Because up to this point, the people had no idea. They were only going by what they heard from the church leaders telling them. Of course, all of these men, because of their bold stand, were eventually excommunicated, declared as heretics, and some were even burned at the stake. However, the fruit of their stand for the gospel was spreading. And that leads us into the next era of time what we call the Age of Reformation, the 16th and 17th centuries. A time period when Christians stood against the Catholic stronghold and preached boldly justification by faith alone. And in so doing, they were reforming the church. They were recovering the true gospel. And they were fueling Protestant Christianity. In fact, there was a monk by the name of Martin Luther. We've talked about him already this morning in the hymns that he wrote. He had lived his entire life trying to earn God's favor through the dogma of the Catholic Church. It plagued him. Because he began to realize that no matter how hard he tried, he could never do enough to earn God's favor. He could never do enough to actually bring peace to his soul. And as a university professor, he began to dive deep into the studies of Scripture, especially three books. 
Now, history tells us that he really dove into the book of Psalms, but what really made the difference too was his study of Galatians, of Romans, and Hebrews. And what did he begin to see? In those books, he began to see doctrines such as Christ's substitutionary death. And when he began to read about Christ's substitutionary death, that is that Christ took our place on the cross, bearing our sin, bearing God's wrath, it arrested his mind that Christ had indeed bore all of Luther's sin on the cross by taking his place in death. And when he began to read this from Galatians and Romans and Hebrews, he, he developed a profound sense of God's forgiveness of sin in his own life, not by working to merit salvation, but freely receiving God's forgiveness by his unmerited grace through faith alone. History records to us that Luther says the turning point, the text that changed his life was Romans 1.17. We read it at the beginning. Where the word of God says the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. Because it is written, the righteous live by faith. How does a person become righteous? By faith. That's what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 1. A person becomes righteous not by the visible things that they do, not by their merit, not by their works, not by adding all of this stuff to the name of Christ. No, there's only one way that a person becomes righteous, and that is faith in the sacrifice and substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. And when he began to see this, and the Holy Spirit enlightened this in his life, his, his, his soul awakened. It awakened. It's what we talk about in Ephesians, the moment where we are brought from death to life, quickened, resurrected. Here's what Luther said. I began to understand that the righteousness of God is a gift of God by faith. That righteousness, the righteousness of God, is, it's revealed by the gospel with which the merciful God justifies us by faith. That he who through faith is righteous will live forever. Here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. Now let me just add a side note here. These men whom we call reformers, we, we call them reformers because they were leaders of the Protestant Reformation. These men never viewed themselves as innovators. They, they never viewed themselves as men who were developing new theology. That's not the emphasis here. It's not that Luther was developing something new. No, what Luther was saying here is that he, seen, he saw himself as a sinner who discovered what was already there in the Scripture. Realizing that he had been blinded to it by the false dogma of the church. And, of course, their subsequent desire to stand against this false doctrine was to call the church back to the truth of the Bible and the purity of the gospel. So, as we will celebrate next week, October the 31st, 1517, Martin Luther wrote a series of 95 pros propositions or indictments against the errors and abuses of the Roman Catholic Church. 
and he nailed them to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany. It was a protest against the church. And these 95 indictments, these 95 propositions came to be known as the 95 Theses. My heart was overjoyed last year at this time when everybody else was going through the trunk or treat line. I walked out of my my space there in the back, came in to go into my office, and I noticed nailed to my office door was a cardboard box with a picture of Martin Luther and 95 Reese's. (laughs) My precious friend who is not here today, Clayton Schmutzler, was so quick-witted to get that done. All right? These are not 95 Reese's. These are 95 theses. Let me, let, me, let me give you a few examples of what he was addressing. He, he addressed the false teaching of purgatory, a teaching that the Catholic Church began to develop, that, that there's this intermediate place between heaven and hell where sin can be paid for in hopes of being lifted out of purgatory and be able to be allowed into heaven. In fact, the 11th proposition, the 11th theses, Luther wrote, the penalty of purgatory was evidently sown while the bishops were sleeping. Then he addressed the error of the works sacraments. Again, the works sacraments, if these specific sacraments are followed, then sins could be forgiven and guilt could be removed. Instead of Christ's sacrifice fully atoning for our sins, these other things are needed in order for atonement to be made. Things like baptism and confirmation, transubstantiation through the Eucharist, penance, penance, which is confession to a priest, followed by doing something good to cover up that sin and other things as well. Luther wrote in his second theses, the word repentance cannot be understood as referring to the sacraments of penance, that is, confession and satisfaction as ministered by the clergy. He also stood against the corruption of selling indulgences. What are indulgences? Well, by the Catholic Church, especially during this time, indulgences are used a little bit differently today. Today you can earn indulgences, and this day they actually sold them. Instead of going through penance, you can skip penance altogether if you like, if you just simply paid an amount of money to the church. This is how they built their churches and cathedrals. You can get rid of all your sin by paying this money to the church. And when you pay this money to the church, your sin will be forgiven. Perhaps your time in purgatory will be shortened. Or you can even help a loved one escape who might already be there. 21st Theses, Luther said, those indulgences that preachers uh, promote are in error. How can they say that a man is absolved from every penalty and saved by papal indulgences? Of course, that led to him standing against the abuses of the Pope himself, who even to this day presents himself as infallible, having the power to remove guilt having the power to remove sin. Luther said in his sixth thesis, the Pope cannot remove any guilt except by declaring that it has already been removed by God. This is just biblical theology. And needless to say, this sent a shockwave throughout all of Europe, largely due to God's providence in the newest technology of that day, the printing press. Or... Social media. 
That's what it was called then, social media, the printing press. God had providentially allowed the printing press to come on the scene at the same time he was reforming the church as he was bringing these monks to the surface who were standing for right doctrine and against the false doctrine of the church. And it began to spread. Copies of Luther's 95 theses were sent everywhere throughout the known world. History even records to us that one even made it to the chamber of the Pope himself. He produced additional writings during that time that elaborated on these issues. And it was from all of this, church family, that Protestant Christianity was fueled. And that's where the term Protestant comes from. We, as Bible-believing Christians, are among those Christians who protest, Protestant protest, we, we protest against the false teaching of the Catholic Church. We protest against any false teaching for that matter. We are Christians who have protested against the false theology of the Catholic Church, a teaching that has deceived many even today in believing that they're Christian without ever having been truly born again by faith in Christ alone. We're not Catholic Christians. We're Protestant Christians. We affirm and celebrate this great movement of God in church history when the true gospel was recovered and boldly proclaimed through the Protestant Reformation. Now I want you to get this, and then I'm going to move on to close this out. At the heart of the Reformation was a return to the Scriptures as the supreme and final authority of Christian doctrine because that had not been the authority. The Pope was the authority. The councils were the authority. The dogma was the authority. The church in that regard was the authority over the Word of God. But at the heart of the Reformation was a return to the Bible. Christians began to rise up in different regions of the world to translate the Bible and print the Bible and preach the Bible. You see, the Scriptures have been obscured during the Dark Ages, but now it was being unleashed to the world. Luther said, I am bound to the Scriptures. My conscience is captive to the word of God. Here I stand. I can do no other. Someone once asked Luther, said, what did you do to spur that movement? Here's what he said. I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's word. Otherwise, I didn't do anything. The word did it all. Another reformer by the name of William Tyndall, he was burned at the stake. But not before he was able to translate the scriptures from Hebrew and Greek into English which was another major protest. We've, we've covered this already. It was a major protest against the Catholic Church who only permitted one translation of the Bible, the Latin Vulgate. Tyndall, like we do today, believed that Christians deserve to have an accurate translation of the Bible in their everyday language and vernacular. And thank God that we live in a day where we have access to these translations. A Bible that we can read and understand for ourselves without the need for someone else to interpret it for me, without being hidden by tradition and history. This was Catholic theology. And these English translations of the Bible, they began to spread so much that one Catholic bishop told his fellow priest this, and I quote in the year 1560, he said, the lay people now know the scriptures better than many of us. You see, the Protestant Reformation was truly a movement of the supremacy of the Bible. 
And in just a matter of decades, Protestant churches rose to prominence in many parts of Europe. Men like Ulrich Zwingli and John Calvin not only preached the gospel themselves, but they actually sent missionaries throughout Europe and South America where the gospel was taken to people who had never heard. What is the point of all of this? The point is that Christ had stayed faithful to his promise in Matthew 16, 18. He built his church and he, pre- he preserved his church. He prevailed over religious corruption. Which led us into the 17th through the 20th centuries. We call this the age of revival. A time period when Christians experienced a revival of theology, conversions, and sacredness of church worship and structure. People like the Puritans who were set on purifying the church through the word of God. They came on the scene and though they had success in England, they ultimately found America as the solution for religious freedom. So these Puritans, they came to America and they began to emphasize the purity of the church through Scripture. J.I. Packer said Puritanism was essentially a movement for church reform, pastoral renewal and evangelism, and spiritual revival in the world. Then came men, and some of you will recognize these names, men like Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield, John Wesley, his brother Charles Wesley, Charles Finney, then Charles Spurgeon, then D.L. Moody. The Puritan movement produced these great awakening preachers who were used by God to bring a great revival to Europe and now a great revival to America. And then here we are in what many call today the age of global missions. The 20th and 21st centuries, that time period around 1914 to where we are here in 2022. We are experiencing what many have called this age of global missions, a unique period of time by God's providence where the gospel is being sent and preached around the world as the Lord prepares his return. And let me just say to us all this morning that regardless of what may happen in the future, we know Christ will build his church. We know that Christ will preserve his church. Protestant Reformation had many aspects to it, church family. And there continues to be significant differences between Roman Catholicism and Protestant Christianity today. And we're going to look at those details in the next two weeks. But at the core of the Reformation, as well as those existing distinctions and differences today, is this question. One question. How does a person get right with God. That's at the heart of it. How does a person get right with God? Well, again, Romans chapter 1, verse 16. Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, also to the Greek. For in it, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As is it written, the righteous live by faith. I'll give you these three things and we're going to pray. Number one, the gospel is God's provision of righteousness for unrighteous people. The gospel is God's provision of righteousness for unrighteous people. Again, Romans 1, 16. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. How do we get right? How do we become righteous with God? Well, he answers that. It's the gospel. The gospel. 
Luther called this the sweet exchange whereby Christ took my sin, my death, my damnation in hell, and he in exchange gave me his grace, his life, and his eternal salvation. Because it can't be earned. It can't be earned, worked for, merited. Romans 3.20 says, By the works of the law, no human being will be made righteous. But, as 2 Corinthians 5 tells us, for our sake, that is for yours and for mine, God made Christ to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. How do we get right with God? Not confirmation. Not transubstantiation. Not indulgences. Not the rosary bead. Not praying to the saints. Not revering Mary to a place of divinity. That's not how we get right with God. We get right with God when we look at what Christ has done on the cross in my place and we trust that action and that action alone. So understand here this morning, regardless of what you've been taught, what your background is, I'm here to help you because just as hundreds of thousands of people are being deceived even this morning into thinking that they're Christians but without ever hearing about the true gospel, Perhaps there may be some this morning who thinks that the only way I can become righteous is if I keep doing all these things that the church told me I had to do in hopes that maybe I'll make it. And if I don't make it, at least I'll get to purgatory, which is nowhere in the Bible, and maybe, maybe my family will pay enough, do enough to get me out of there in the meantime. No, no, it's, 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 it's not in the Bible. The only way we are made righteous it's through God's provision of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here's the second thing I want you to write down. The gospel is for anyone who believes, not for anyone who earns. And this is good news. The gospel is for anyone who believes, not anyone who earns. Again, we go, we go to, back to Romans chapter 1. He says it's the gospel that is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Believes by faith, trusting God. Not earning it, not working for it. It's for anyone who believes, not anyone who earns. Paul said in Ephesians, it is by grace that you are saved through faith. It is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. It's not a result of works. And then thirdly, the gospel of Christ's righteousness is received only by faith, not by works. It is received only by faith, not by works. You see... The only way that you and I can stand before God as being made right with him is if we stand there clothed in Jesus Christ because there's nothing righteous about us and there never will be anything righteous about us. The only way that we can be made righteous is if Jesus stands in our place. And for Jesus to stand in our place, he doesn't want me to show my righteousness. He wants me to cling to his righteousness. He says here again in verse 17, righteous people are righteous because of faith. They live by faith. In other words, 
Those who are truly made righteous are those who are truly living by faith in Christ. All these things are important. And next week we're going to look at a very important Latin word. It's the word sola. It's the English word meaning alone. Because that's what many religions today use to deceive us. Sure, you want to believe in Jesus? Great. But believe in him and do this. Believe in him and do that. Believe in him and be sure you go through with that. No, no, no. That's not the gospel. The gospel is that we are saved by grace alone. By faith alone. In Christ alone. According to scripture alone. And for the glory of God alone. And here's my appeal. Until you come to Christ empty-handed. And you will never be able to experience the joy and the peace of biblical salvation. I want to help you this morning. Allow church history and the word of God to speak so clearly to your heart. That you repent of your sins and your works and your merit. And you turn to Jesus Christ alone. I know, I know. I know this not that you've never heard the name of Jesus. You've heard it a lot. What he's asking you to do is come to him all by yourself. Just come to him. Not with your sacraments. Not with your confirmation. No, just come to him and say, Lord, empty-handed. I'm trusting you to do what I could never do by myself. And that, my friend, is when the gospel takes root and salvation buds forth and eternal life begins. Let's stand together for prayer.